to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Welcome to Damned. Uh, this is not Jake Flores. Uh, Jake is gone. He's missing on tour. Uh, and this is Rog of Meta, accompanied by Anders, my co-host. Anders Lee here. There's been a coup. Yeah, there's been a Jake coup. And our other co-host. Alex Patak. Hi. Welcome. Hello. Where's Jake? We have a very special edition of Pod Dame America today. We're also accompanied by our guest today. Uh, he's a staff writer for Jacobin. He's also appeared in The Guardian. Uh, welcome, Luke Savage. Luke, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm, uh, I'm sad Jake isn't here because I was listening to uh, one of your old episodes and I was going to take him to task for saying that he likes the Han Solo movie, which uh, almost made me reconsider coming on, to be honest, but... Oh, I uh, I try to take him to task for that every day of his life. Yeah. Well, this um, actually leads us to our first question. Have you seen Jake? No? He's not <laughs> in Canada? All right. Oh, you're asking me. No, I have not seen Jake. Where Where is he on tour? Oh, yeah. To, to uh, inform everybody, that Luke is also uh, based in Canada. So, uh, you know, yeah, uh, it's, judge it's away. Right now and everything. That's why he sounds so foreign and strange (laughs) to Yankee ears. What do we think Jake is doing right now? I I I, think he's in Louisiana or something, so he's probably tied up with uh, investigating swamps. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's like there's some neoliberalism in this swamp. (laughs) (laughs) These gators have been the same since Clinton's been here. It's like fucked up. Uh, NAFTA ruined this. I'm willing to put money on Jake is not awake yet. And yeah, it's yeah one thirty on a Friday. Pretty safe to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's okay because we are awake and we have a lot to talk about. There is uh, uh before we get into some of the other stuff, uh, government shutdown. What is it? Where is it? How do we feel about it? Flights are being stalled at LaGuardia. Last I checked, I believe there's a child working at TSA. Yeah, you told you mentioned this before. What I saw a photo of it online. I can only assume that it's a try-hard kid who like aspires to be a TSA. It's agent. Jacob Wall. It's a young <laughs> yeah. Republican straight to work program type thing. Yeah, something like that, or just a kid who's like really into Wait, security. Really? Yeah, I saw the picture. Yeah, it's on Twitter. Oh uh, there's some God. kid who's like really into security or something. Is, is, it, is, it, is it supposed to be inspiring? It's like while they're unionized workers <laughs> and not showing up for work, like this heroic kid is scabbing on, you know, for the in the public interest. This child it's, is undermining labor across America. It's actually part of a special charter school where they have <laughs> children fi- fill in for striking workers. Yeah, New York Post has already dedicated a. Uh, a one story to them, <laughs> a profile. <laughs> it's, like uh, they, it's like when they send prisoners to fight wildfires, but now they're just emptying out public schools to like ban <laughs> the TSA during the shutdown. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I don't know what the logical conclusion. I mean, the d- dissolution the, of the state, I guess. But uh, is the child allowed to touch you if security goes? <laughs> 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 I'm using the back of my hand. <laughs> I want to make sure you feel safe. But I don't know. Um, now it's uh, disrupting commerce, so maybe uh, that will uh, end this. But who knows? Who knows? It does look like, though, the government has enough money to lock up Roger Stone. Uh, I, this is t- sort of late-breaking news. Oh, yes. He point. was indicted this morning. He's yeah. a loser of the week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he sure is. What is it? Is this sort of a, a tragic thing that we can't get his takes and we can't get his uh i mean he's going to be stuck to the confined to the jumpsuit he'll write a book in prison and it will be uh our generation's uh soul on ice or whatever right <laughs> <laughs> what's your reaction to that luke uh what to roger stone yeah you're all I, had, I, I hadn't i hadn't heard about this you guys are gonna have to fill me in well, well he was indicted by fbi well he was taken prisoner but he was taken (laughs) yeah he was taken son he um uh went against sharia law and had to be impounded by the federal government (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what he's indicted for was he indicted for uh not that like his entire life isn't just a jenga pile of crimes (laughs) they looked at his they looked at his wikipedia profile (laughs) they watched the netflix documentary and they're like oh no oh we should have got this guy years ago (laughs) um but yeah so uh there's that going on our country is uh being great again and um uh, something happened in venezuela uh over the last couple days isn't that right guys that's true uh ocasio-cortez has to answer for her crimes (laughs) (laughs) yeah and we have to appoint our new uh dsa leader nicolas maduro (laughs) um yeah he's uh he's 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 being bamboozled uh, much like ja rule i read that uh the foreign ministry in canada had been planning this since like two weeks ago yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't, I hadn't heard that, but it, uh, it certainly wouldn't surprise me. Um, but it, it especially didn't surprise me that the Canadian government backed up the Trump administration uh, on this because, uh, despite their uh, reputation, or I guess what's still their reputation, they're not. It's not a particularly uh, progressive or left-leaning government in any in any meaningful uh, sense. Yeah, then we got this Friedlander. Who is what was the foreign secretary in in Canada? Adam Friedlander. Yeah. Adam Friedlander. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and she's. She, I mean, she's like a former. I mean, she is obviously Canadian, but um, her like she's somebody that a lot of Americans have actually probably heard of. I think she's been on Bill Maher a few times. Oh, yeah. She she is part of that sort of like. Times. Yeah, that's right. She's part of uh, like that sort of New York Times uh, orbit. I think she was involved in Reuters at one point, um, and she wrote kind of like a not particularly good book about um, uh, inequality. It was kind of part of that like post-occupy zeitgeist of like, like lib, you know, lib responses or whatever. Um, And so that's kind of her background. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Didn't surprise me that uh, Canada's government backed, uh, backed Trump on this. We should do like a, uh, like quick recap of the situation. If you're totally, in in the woods and haven't heard anything about venezuela in the last week the leader of their opposition party just declared himself president and then 
coalition of world governments all recognized him as president. Yeah, and from what I understand, uh, I think uh, this is kind of like a Kushner-led uh, thing, and they didn't alert U.S. diplomats that they were backing the coup. And U.S. diplomats, I think, found out through just like a news alert, oh. and then they were given like seventy-two hours to leave the country. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, well, it seems so at this point, anyway. It seems like it's a mostly symbolic thing because the military to, at this point is still backing Maduro like a hundred percent. Right. So you have all these countries recognizing him as not the president. So in the eyes of the international community, he's illegitimate. But he was still. Elected in Venezuela and has the authority to, uh, I guess, quash the opposition by force if necessary, um, which not a great not a great scenario. But uh, it does it, seem like a thing he loves doing. So yeah. it might happen. The scary thing about this is when you're in a situation where there's a coup rising with only international support. Uh, you have to wonder, is there the specter of like, oh, are we going to send them troops or, <laughs> you know, how are they going to pull this off? Uh, so it's kind of a scary time all around. And also France joined the coalition. Uh, That's so France. <laughs> they love coalition. I guess. <laughs> they love freedom, yeah. Uh, well, Luke, you mentioned the rhetoric of inequality and how that's sort of been taken up by a whole uh, people from a bunch of different sort of perspectives, on the left anyway. Um, how has that played out in Canada? Because you've seen, uh, as you've written about Trudeau has really taken up this, um, 99% versus 1% rhetoric, uh, in, during the elections anyway. Um, but it hasn't quite played out in, in sort of a policy framework with, with that, uh, it hasn't, he hasn't really addressed inequality in a substantive way. Oh yeah, absolutely not. I mean, I, I would say the best way to understand, uh, you know, obviously Canada has its own kind of like weirdness and stuff um, that like maybe doesn't translate to an American context that well. But the best way to understand what happened in Canada in 2015 from a U.S. perspective is like imagine if the Democrats were like 10 percent smarter about their branding um, and still had the same kind of generally conservative and shitty orientation, but they understood that, you know, uh, this is kind of language that will resonate with people and uh, and which people will find uh, you know attractive and will want to vote for. So that's that's basically what they did. Um, you know, in the summer of 2015, they started talking about how uh, they're they're anti austerity and how they're going to run this big. Uh, you know, they're going to run deficits and you know they're they're going to do like and that was considered a you know really big break with kind of uh, I guess economic orthodoxy because like you know, running, saying you're going to run deficits is supposed to be political suicide. Um, and they said, yeah, we're going to raise taxes on the 1%, which like, if you look at what they actually did is, is not really, they, they, they also did a, a tax cut um, for mostly the top 10% of people. So it was kind of like, it was kind of a bullshit, uh, a bullshit move. Um but it, it, it sound like they did any of the things they said they did. No, no, no. And I mean, even the like the the deficit spending is just like when they actually announced it. It's all just like you know uh, putting up money that's designed to attract like corporate investors and stuff. Like it's total. It's it's it was a total faint. Um, but it was smarter than what the Democrats did in 2016, where they were just like Hillary Clinton is the most qualified person, and if you don't 
if you're not enthusiastic head over heels for her, it means you're a bad person. Um, you know, so they were smart about that. And they've also been really savvy about their branding internationally. So Trudeau, you know, he had that Rolling Stone cover periodically. He'll go to these like big conferences and he'll, you know, wear like a three piece suit and he'll stand up with like an expensive glass of champagne. And he'll say like, you know, the global elite needs to understand that inequality is a problem or something. And he doesn't even have to say anything substantive. It's just, I guess, so rare for, um, you know, world leaders to talk that way. Uh, even if it's totally superficial, um, you know, the coverage that he gets every time he does that is always like so, uh, fawning. And I think that's given the impression that Canada has this like ultra woke left leaning government, which just like, isn't the case at all. Yeah. He seems to be building off of this, uh, superficial Obama brand of neoliberalism where he can be all things to all people and it's all aesthetic and optics while you know he's spearheading uh you know arms deals oh yeah and and it and it doesn't even have the it doesn't even have the uh like obama even though he was a very ultimately a very orthodox politician i mean he was an outsider in 2007 2008 right i mean he Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he was this junior senator who's considered a long shot, and his middle name is Hussein, and he was black, and he was running against, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton. And Trudeau doesn't even have that. Like Trudeau is just the son of a former prime minister who basically inherited Canada's default uh, ruling party. Um, and so, you know, that's why what happened in 2015 kind of worked the way it did. It was this perfect package where it had this kind of uh, this novelty of like, you know, oh, things are going to change and, you know, we're going to fight inequality. But it was all in this very safe, um, this very safe package because it's like, oh, but it's just a Trudeau and it's just the Liberal Party. Right. It, it's weird because he is this, as you mentioned, like this legacy politician. He's a white dude, but he still is, along with the inequality rhetoric, very big on, I, I guess, as you said, wokeness, Raghav. Uh, and I, I just want to quote, uh, something he said recently that you posted at the at the Davos convention or forum, whatever the hell it is. Uh, he says, diversity is the engine of invention. Little rhyme there. It generates creativity that enriches the world. Uh, <laughs> what? I know we all speak English in, uh, in the United States, but could you maybe translate that for us? You know what I, you know what I love about that is how like if you look at the, the different words in the sentence, like so many of them are kind of economistic. So it's like, it's, it's superficially woke because it's talking about diversity, but like, look at it. So you've got, it's diversity is an engine, right. And, uh, and of invention and it's generating uh, creativity and the, and the end, the end result of that process is it enriching the world. So it's like, you know, it's it's it is very neoliberal because it's all about like it ultimately just comes down to like enriching people and gen and like generating things. You know, like it's there's very limited uh, you know kind of political imagination at work in this type of like woke neoliberalism and dumb sentences like that are proof. Yeah. It sounds like the scene in Anchorman where they're discussing diversity. <laughs> <laughs> it's like diversity is an old wooden ship. And you're like, yes. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of old wooden ships, this Davos forum has a lot of these <laughs> these crusty old uh, wooden 
people. Trudeau is one of the most charismatic <laughs> figures there, I would say. Uh, but what what the hell is Davos? Like, what what do they do there? It's I had no where idea is what it? Was. What what is the point of this thing? It's like uh, I don't know. It's like fart sniffing for the global elite. Like I don't. They just I don't know. They get together and they just like spin these kind of weird like yarns about like there were some other things that uh, Trudeau uh, thing you quoted is from 2016 and they made uh they made a bunch of these shareables I guess to like advertise how cool and woke and progressive Davos is and I mean that's not even close to the most ridiculous one there's the CEO of Coca-Cola and he said we need the three W's women water and well-being um so i'll leave it to you guys to translate that there was somebody else her quote was uh the fourth industrial revolution should be a revolution of values um she's the ceo of something or other and then there's for some reason just well i am has one of these and and his quote is just, w. and he's right <laughs> yeah yeah and he's just wearing these uh like he's just wearing like these big glasses, and his quote is, "Let's put our optimism goggles on." <laughs> Jesus, his uh, goggles do his glasses do look like optimism goggles. I will say it. Well, I am. My my favorite part. Uh, I've watched a couple of Davos clips. There, they did address Ocasio's Ocasio Cortez's seventy uh, percent marginal tax rate proposal. And it was directed at Michael Dell of Dell Computers. And he kind of scoffed and, you know, laughed it off. And he was like, oh, you know, where does a policy like that even work? And um, right next to him, a guy, he's the director of uh, Initiative on Digital Economy at MIT. His name's Eric Brinjolfson. Literally cut him off and he said, well, uh, it worked here. And the quote is, from about the 1930s through about the 1960s, the tax rate averaged about 70%. At times, it was up as high as 95%, and those were actually pretty good years for growth. There's actually a lot of economics that uh, uh, suggest it's not necessarily going to hurt growth. And everyone just kind of brushed it off like he did not say that. <laughs> Whatever, nerd. Yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> you didn't invent a computer. They're like, fuck off. Well, actually, bro. <laughs> he was like the Neil deGrasse Tyson of that <laughs> panel. Well, as we've seen, and he was sort of ambiguous about the implications of that fact, whether or not we, he was sort of saying like, this is just the, you know, we did do this, whether or not uh, we want to pursue it now is another question. Yes. But that ambiguity, it seems is pretty commonplace um in it, it, from what i've noticed that in at least in canadian politics uh you have you know trudeau of course uh, on a sort of a populist line um then getting an office and, and imposing us sort of austerity politics uh but what is the, the friction there between the liberals and say a more uh left-wing party uh such as the ndp is, is there a hesitance to actually take up a strong sort of uh uh robust politics of socialism and, and redistribution it's you know it's complicated because the the founding of the ndp or the predecessor of the ndp which was founded in the 30s had eradicating capitalism like that phrase in its founding uh document the regina manifesto um it said no ccf government will rest until it has eradicated capitalism and established a socialist commonwealth or something like that i'm paraphrasing um and, you know, the, the NDP, which was created in the 60s, uh, was, I guess, more traditionally kind of uh, social democratic, um, you know, committed to a more mixed economy and things like that. Um, but 
you know, the NDP never formed government at the at the federal level. Like it's governed individual provinces. So the experience is kind of different than like the Democrats or or the Labour Party in Britain. And I think that's one of the reasons why the NDP is in kind of a unique and sort of weird, uh, you know, weird position because it's not. Uh, it doesn't have the same kind of uh, like the, this thing that's happening in the United States with like the DSA or what's happening in uh, Britain with, uh, you know, momentum and Corbyn and stuff like that's not really happening here. But it's not because the uh, NDP is like some, you know, hard right. Like it's not uh, where, say, something like Australian labor often seems to be at. Um, it just it just uh, hasn't quite figured out uh, what the what the what the language and kind of what the uh you know what the orientation to kind of channel this stuff needs to be in canada and one of the weird reasons for that is that like canadian politics is mostly about uh or has mostly been about identity in a way that's really weird and i think kind of difficult for um people watching from abroad to understand like the kind of basic like left right cleavage that a lot of european countries or to some extent the united states has like we don't really have that here in the same way uh like the ndp has and like social democracy have always been this kind of third force and then you just have the liberals occupying like this big mushy middle and their job is has been like to broker between you know ontario and quebec and like the different parts of the country because um in the same way that like some states in the united states are like very uh like identitarian like they they really want to like assert you know their own uh their own rights and their own identity or that's the language they use anyway um that's like almost every region of canada is like that and so a lot of canadian politics have been like frankly very like boring attempts to kind of negotiate between those different things as opposed to like uh foregrounding you know class politics or 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 inequality or anything like that huh well and it seems like the trudeau legacy is sort of along those lines because if i'm correct they that family comes from quebec right which is the the most heavily french canadian province is that sort of been uh justin and his father pierre's role more or less to sort of negotiate that that french canadian identity with the the national sovereignty of, of canada yeah, well, I mean, Pierre Trudeau basically invented, I mean, who was a very, a very, you know, a flawed and like, like his son, a more conservative politician than a lot of people realize, but he was kind of like a, um, I mean, he was like a real thinker, you know, and he kind of, he's one of the inventors of modern Canada um, in a way, and he's part of this generation of, of uh, you know, people from Quebec who uh, kind of came to dominate Canadian politics beginning in the 19, uh, the 1960s really. Um, and yeah, I mean that, you know, Quebec nationalism that, I mean, there's a whole other, we could do a whole, it wouldn't be very funny, but, uh, there, we, could do a whole, we could do a whole podcast on, uh, we could do a whole That's podcast on that. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean the, the liberal party still very much like fulfills that function. And, and apart from all the identity stuff I just said, I mean, what it is really adept at and has always been really adept at is just this thing of being all things to all people. Like, um, right. it's been, they're, they're so good. Like, I think probably better than any, uh, anyone else in the world trying to do this. They're so good at, uh, 
you know, three months before an election, they suddenly become like the saviors of the working class and like these <laughs> tribunes of the downtrodden. And then when they're actually in government, it's just the same, the same, you know, bullshit. And it's just, you know, bankers and business people running everything. And even when they do have like, um, you know, these sort of somewhat well-meaning academics or whatever that make it into cabinet with them, like those people just don't have any, uh, those people just don't have any kind of clout or, or say or whatever. Right. Well, do you think there, there is, I believe, an election coming up in Canada, a federal election. Uh, do you think he's going to be able to get away with it this time? Because I know there is a new leader in the NDP. Some people are excited about Jagmeet Singh, who's a, a sick uh, person from uh, he's, the religion is sick. Um, that's how you yeah, say. It. Yeah, yeah. No, Some I, people say seek, and yeah, it's, yeah. It it's makes wrong. It, yeah, yeah. It's wrong, but it also makes it clearer that you're not calling him sick. It does uh, sound like that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's a, he's a, he seems like a cool guy. Um, we don't think he's sick. We think he's cool. He's, yeah, he's, he's got some great sound bites out there. <laughs> does he have a, a shot? Uh, I know he's not like in the parliament to go head to head with Trudeau, but do you think there's a chance he can sort of take him to task? Uh, especially on these economic issues. Yeah, I mean, Trudeau is actually super vulnerable. I don't, I don't think the NDP is really fully uh, capitalized on that yet. Um, but I, I don't know. I, as far as I get, I get asked this a lot, and I don't, I don't know about making uh, predictions. I guess the smart money would probably be on Trudeau uh, surviving because he is going to be able to run. Like, I can already imagine what his campaign will be. It will just be like... Um, you know, I'm the I'm the sort of anti-Trump figure, and the Conservative Party, who's they're kind of the the other big party in Canadian politics. Uh, it's like you're just electing, uh, you know, you'll just elect like a Trump proxy or whatever. Even though, of course, Trudeau's like not really an anti-Trump figure in any in any meaningful uh, way. But like that's one of the that's one of the things that always makes it very hard for the NDP to break through, right? It's like um, the Liberals can always just say. I mean, it's kind of what the Democrats do as well, right? They just say, you know, if you uh, if you don't if you don't support us uncritically at all times, uh, you're just helping the Republicans. So, like, that's why you need to go save the Republic by voting for Andrew Cuomo and Joe Manchin or whatever. Uh, well, uh, speaking of the Democrats, you've been uh, trying to warn us, Yanks, as as much as you can about another uh, Trudeau down here. Um, I've been saying for a very long time that we got to make, because people can't listen to Trudeau um, substantively because he's so pretty. He's got the, he's a hottie with a body. He's he got the nice do, gap to He does tooth. that thing where he does a handstand on his desk. He Have did that? Seen that? He did oh, that yeah, yeah, yeah. He did that once and there's one photo of it. <laughs> he does it all the time and it's just easy and fun for him to do. Or either that or he's really good at Photoshop. Uh, but <laughs> this is a wild theory that he never did the handstand. I don't think he did the handstand. <laughs> Canada's this is our landing. birther. Yeah. yeah. This, is, this is our much more like like chair version of Pizzagate is like Trudeau didn't do the handstand. <laughs> he can't do that shit. Ask him to do it. Why was Stanley Kubrick in his office? <laughs> <laughs> but I've been saying for a long time, we got to find little ways to make him chunkier. If you're a, a leftist who works in the restaurant industry in Canada and you, you serve in Trudeau, slip him some fudge, get some <laughs> extra margarine, give him a dessert on the house, uh, pack on an extra 20, 30 pounds and people Damn. will not take him as seriously. Um, but something you have been warning about is is repeating uh, the same mistake. And I guess this applies to Obama, too. But doing this over again in the U.S. where we have... 
um, figures who some of them are, are slightly more substantive than Obama was, but are nonetheless um, pretty vacuous and uh, conservative in, in what they um, will probably do if they end up in, in office. And, and you see that um, already in the, in the 2020 primary that's that's heating up. Can you Corey talk a little Booker. bit about What's that? Cory Booker. Cory Booker. Yeah. Can you what what warning signs should we be looking out for down here? Well, I think a lot of those people are going to look to copy Justin Trudeau, right? I mean, because he he is he's the the only person who's kind of uh, seemed to figure out this formula when you have you know people uh, when there's when there's like a large popular base or potential one for kind of leftier politics. Uh, he's figured out the formula for kind of seeming to. Uh, you know, acknowledge and understand that um, and take it on board while basically being, you know, thoroughly orthodox. And I have to say, though, uh, I was, I've expected, I mean, Cory Booker hasn't announced yet, but, um, you know, Gillibrand and, and, and Harris have started, you know, posturing and they're, they are not, um, like, I expected them to pander to the left a lot more. Um, and they don't, they don't really seem to, to get it. And then you got Biden, who, I mean, granted, he hasn't announced yet, but just this week he was talking about how, um, oh, you know, they say that, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a sin to like Republicans. Well, forgive me, father, for I've sinned, you know, like he's, he's posturing himself as like, it's so corny. <laughs> it's such bullshit. I'm like, I don't, oh, I don't man. think it's, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that they're like they could try to do something like a Biden Romney, you know, joint ticket, or you know, maybe bring like resurrect the corpse of Joe Lieberman. Not that he's actually dead, but resurrect the corpse of Joe Lieberman to like, you know, come and like just take another kick at the can or something. Like these people are really, um, they are really not getting it. Um, like I, I just saw Kamala Harris has some like rap video that she tweeted out or something. Um, oh, her dancing to Cardi B. Yeah, and it's like uh, they, maybe is she that the one you're talking about? Is there one where I, she's actually rapping? Because I kind of want to see. That. I think I, there's the there's that there's a, a Kamala for Wakanda, which by the way, Wakanda is a monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much Saudi Arabia in Africa. Let's <laughs> yeah. say it. <laughs> yeah, like she's just gonna take the vibranium from them. <laughs> But she's doing the pose, and it's, it's. I mean, it's so transparent. I mean, they haven't learned anything. She she hired Hillary Clinton's uh, communications director. It's so it's so telling what they're doing, and it's it's a little surprising, you know. While uh, you know Bernie hasn't announced yet, obviously he will be the more most far left candidate. Uh, Warren just introduced a wealth tax plan, um, and then uh, I don't know what Kirsten Gillibrand is doing. Uh, well, she just said she uh, isn't really going to try to end the filibuster. Yeah, the fifty. Very inspiring. Right. And, her, and her, uh, her rationale for that was like, well, if you don't have sixty votes for something, maybe you haven't done the you know advocacy work or something. As if the like American legislative process is some really good faith you know thing where you just advocate and you persuade people and then you get sixty votes. Like what she's effectively saying is like she's giving herself a foil for like if she becomes president. And doesn't get like doesn't get any progressive policies through. She can be like, well, uh, you know, the filibuster was there, and, and we didn't we didn't have the votes. Um, but it's just like a way of kneecapping any even remotely progressive policy agenda before it even you know has a chance to breathe. She, she, she tri- saw like a Nike commercial that said this country's founded on hustle and was like, I guess it is. That's my <laughs> thing now. She should be transparent. She's like, if we want to get anything done, we have to buy Joe Manchin an ATV. 
a fleet, <laughs> an entire fleet of ATVs. If we're operating under the uh, the dumbest thing will happen theory, uh, I see them nominating Cory Booker with a Romney ticket. I see that happening. The Bear Stearns uh, ticket? Yeah. I, I don't think Booker has it. I don't, I don't think he'll win. But uh, if if we are assuming the dumbest thing will happen, that's, that's what I Which party's for LGBT rights? Well, we've got two daddies on the <laughs> same ticket. we got the common sense Republican who is known for losing. <laughs> and we got this bald guy. <laughs> I mean, I do think with... With Biden, though, like I see him, I don't think he's going to win the nomination, but I do see him staying in for a while based on at, at carving out the centrist votes. Yeah, there are sure. enough like he's got all that third way backing. Yeah. And there are enough like, you know, geriatric NPR listeners who genuinely agree with uh, they don't want single payer. They don't want all this stuff that most of the crop of, of perspective uh, candidates are talking about so I'm he, maybe he'll cling to that. where my granddaughter gets longer shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but Luke, what do you think about the the divide right now? Uh, I guess in the left of the Democratic Party, um, Elizabeth Warren has announced we're still waiting on Bernie. Do you think there is a substantive difference there, or should we sort of wait it out? I mean, I, I don't think there's any point in having, I don't think Sanders and Warren supporters should be attacking each other. I think everybody should be happy that there's going to be two candidates attacking Wall Street. Um, but that said, I do think that there are substantive differences between Warren and Sanders. Um, you know, I think Sanders uh, does have more of a sort of movement politics type of uh, uh you know, attitude. Uh, he's somebody that's been immersed in the left for a lot longer. Elizabeth Warren was, um, I think, voting Republican or even registered as a Republican yeah, into the nineties. Yeah, and I mean Warren. Uh, I mean the the thing that she really understands, which seems to elude uh, most other Democrats, is that actually naming and shaming corporate malefactors is the right thing to do, and is also smart politics. Um, but I, I'm not sure, like, I'll be interested to see kind of what else she puts out, what she puts out on foreign policy and kind of what her overall vision looks like, because I don't think I have a real sense of that. And I guess because partly because Sanders ran before, I do think I have a sense of that um, uh, look, looking at him. Um, I, 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 I do think there are substantive differences to, between the two of them that shouldn't be ignored. But I, at this point... Um, you know, I hope people aren't going to the mattresses, uh, on, you know, in those two camps because, uh, there's so many crappy centrists to dunk on right now. Like this is the, this is the season to have fun with that because in six months there's going to be like a narrow field, still very like densely populated, I'm sure of crappy centrists, but, uh, now's the time to air all of your, like, you know, uh, now's the time to just like have a duck hunt of all these like shitty, people while they're still in the running before they drop out for want of cash. It's only so much like donor money to go around after all. True that. Yeah. Uh, Trudeau. <laughs> Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, something you've written about is the sort of the intellectual um, framework behind this, this men centrist mentality, the, I guess the Obama Trudeau mentality. And a lot of that stems back to, um, one show as, you know, big of a concept that is that all this, um, evolved from one place, but, um, much of it, friends, friends, <laughs> 
Yes. The episode where uh, Joey talked about the need to balance the budget. And privatizing social security. Phoebe was like, no, we can't do that. And then uh, Monica came in and was like, hey, I just, you know, um, I'm not going to go down that road. Uh, she friends have had to take the hack bit like one step further. Friends of anything makes the case for rent control because that's the only reason why they're able to live in that that swanky apartment. Oh yeah, for sure. It's a castle, folks. Right? How do they get that thing? She's a barista. I think Friends is actually like a counterfactual example of what would have happened if uh, the Rainbow Coalition had been sustained and Jackson had been president instead of Clinton, and then uh, New York City would have been livable. That's my theory. Interesting. Um, and don't parse that. Don't go looking for references to the actual Clinton administration during the Friends program. But uh, of course, the show. Of course, made. the show we're talking about is The West Wing. <laughs> I was talking about Frasier, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, so the West Wing, we, we got Sorkin on uh, Blitzer. I think he was on Wolf Blitzer. No, Fareed like Fre- Fre- Zakaria. Forgive me. Forgive yeah, me. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he he was he said that, well, he basically sort of um, not so subtly accused Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of being stupid because uh, he said that you know, there is this need for the Democrats to become the smart Party, or, or I think he was. Did he say this? It was either the smart or the not dumb party. Yeah, yeah the what not is stupid party? One of those is not more stupid. aggressive than the other, I, which is very insulting to me. I've been a longtime advocate of embracing stupid, and uh, I think smartness is way overrated. But what is with this fetishization of intelligence, and how does it speak to this uh, centrist worldview? Well, it goes back to the 1990s, I think, and, and well, the 1980s and 90s with kind of the. The, the realignment of the Democratic Party under Bill Clinton, um, you know, with the Democratic Leadership Council and, and, and that whole transformation, um, where these people basically, they use kind of the defeats of the 1970s as a pretext for like uh, just trying to, you know, outflank the Republicans in, you know, on law and order and things like that, become deficit hawks um, and just become you know, the party of this kind of new ascendant white collar professional class. And, you know, Bill Clinton may have been the architect of that in politics or one of its main architects, but Aaron Sorkin, I think was really like, he, he's the chronicler of it. He's the one who is able to give it this kind of romantic uh, sheen and make it like, make it seem cool and, um, and, and enlightened. And, uh, I mean, a few people pointed out in response to the piece I recently wrote in Jacobin that, you know, the worst politics of the show do actually come after um, he, uh, he'd he largely left. I think he came back in season seven and maybe wrote an episode or two. But uh, um, but the politics of the first three seasons that, that he was involved in are nevertheless, you know, very much about, yeah, the smart people versus the stupid people. Um, and, you know, he, he created this whole universe and... Uh, it really, like, I think it started out as kind of like a revisionist, like, here's what the Clinton administration would have been if it wasn't for, you know, the impeachment trials. But then it just became during the Bush era and then into the Obama era, this kind of like, uh, you know, this, like, this documentary that liberals referred to or what they thought was a documentary for, like, uh, how politics should be. And I don't think it's actually exaggerating too much to say that when they finally got their idyllic liberal president Obama, a lot of them were thinking about um, 
the West Wing, and even in Obama's White House, they were you know in some ways inspired by it and informed by it. Uh, Trudeau, by the way, actually went on the West Wing podcast uh, not that long ago. No. How do they have a podcast? I swear they have a podcast where they go through every single episode. Um, and so they're not going to be, I don't think they're going to be finished until later this year or maybe even next year. And they had Trudeau on and he said, oh yeah, you know, I, I watched the West Wing to get ready for my speeches and stuff like that. So there's a whole generation of liberals in multiple countries that had their brains broken by Aaron Sorkin. Uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that he's done like lasting damage to a lot of people's political psyches. And what he wants ultimately, or what he, they embrace, uh, as you pointed out, especially given the threat of, of climate change, is ultimately a kind of nihilism, right? Like these things are not, you know, norms are not as important as carbon, you know, uh, decency and facts or getting your statistics right on a policy paper are not as important as uh, homeless people starving to death in the city. Um, you know, and I, I remember uh, there was a episode of the West Wing where um, they had Rob Lowe's character, who I guess Rob Lowe ended up actually embracing the own views of his character uh, on the West Wing, who was talking about taxes and he was talking about how much he gets taxed and how like, you know, I I pay X, you know, 70 percent of taxes or whatever. And, and but I don't get 70 percent of uh fire department services or schools or all this bullshit. <laughs> I got all these imagine? fires and no one's yeah. helping. Could you imagine a world where there's two fires in the same block and Rob Lowe gets 70% of the fire department? <laughs> <laughs> His house is just always on fire. <laughs> yeah, like to what extent is... Uh, Sorkin sort of just injecting his cranky, like rich guy reactionaryism into uh, what he dresses up as, as like a liberal, um, ostensibly progressive uh, inequality, not having fantasy. Yeah, actually, you know what's funny about uh, be- uh, before I answer that Rob Lowe clip, um, he actually tweeted that out during a Democratic uh, debate between Sanders and Clinton. Like he tweeted his own character doing this like shitty rant about tax policy, like at like at Bernie Sanders, like that's the level of you know fantasy at work here. Like this guy is a real human being; he can express his own opinions, and yet he's still choosing to do them in character because that's the like level of fiction that that this show and its universe is apparently imposed on American liberalism. Um, yeah, I think I, we all want to hear Rob Lowe go off script <laughs> ranting about taxes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, a less, a less uh, that you know, the part of the the recent Sorkin clip that everybody um, you know kind of honed in on, understandably, was this patronizing comment, obviously directed at AOC. Um, but then something he says later in the interview. Um, when he was asked about Trump, uh, he said, it is not the role of the president to stoop to the lowest common denominator. It's the role of the president to try to elevate us all. And we have had presidents, both Republican and Democrat, who have been fantastic at doing that, who can put a lump in our throat and who can appeal to the better angels in our nature. Uh, and then he goes on to describe what that is. And he says, uh, you can make people understand there's more that unites than divides, blah, blah, blah. And then it, the way he finishes this whole thought is he said, 
honestly, it's good speechwriters is what you need. Um, so I feel like he's being pretty explicit there. Like the point of politics for him is just, yeah, put a lump in the throat of guys like me, uh, you know, ha- like write, write good speeches. Like, I really think it is like by its own admission, it's, or by its own admission, it is that shallow. So wh- why are these people not just conservatives is what I ask. Like, is it, it's pure, it's purely aesthetic, right? I mean, they, I think it's it's channeling the politics of of you know a certain type of urban you know you know like a certain kind of urban liberalism that just doesn't really have the cultural affectations of uh, conservatism and isn't like geographically rooted in the same parts of the country. But I mean, I think the 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 the, the question is on to something because you know obviously. Uh, these two types of political affects do actually converge on a lot of substantive issues, right? They're both obsessed with the deficit and like, they're both very, uh, they're both very suspicious of the idea of using the state to try to do anything uh, good. And to some degree think that uh, anybody doing that is actually like, that's the source of the problem is, is people's like naive do goodery. Um, but yeah, I mean, the reasons why it's not just conservative—I mean, it is conservative in a small c way in its implications. So um, we could, you know, actually in detail, you know, maybe dispute how substantively different some of it is. And I, the, the the West Wing also adores a certain type of conservative, right? They're always they're always putting these uh, uh, they're always putting these like reasonable Republicans into episodes uh, who sometimes kind of are, are there to one up the liberal characters and teach us all an important lesson, which is that, you know, we all love the troops and we all love this country. Um, and we're all, all on the same bipartisanship. Team. Yeah. We're all on the same team. So, uh, it seems like on the West wing, Sor- Sorkin, especially like there is, um, yeah, a pretense to sort of a higher, um, decency and, uh, cultural cosmopolitanism and, and liberalism. Um, but, you see, uh, I would think a lot of some of the that the that worldview is more mendacious, more uh, reactionary, and mean spirited, um, th- like thought coming out of a figure like Bill Maher. To what extent do you think he is kind of the valve for the nastier sides of of this uh, centrist worldview? Yeah, I mean, I, he because he has. Uh, um like I think, I think he's doing something similar for a kind of cable news uh, medium, but it it is more openly mean spirited, and it's not just about like the smart dumb uh, binary that Sorkin's so fond of. Like it's also about this kind of very Bush era clash of civilizations thing. You know, it's like. Uh, uh, you know, that, that wing of kind of the new atheist movement that, you know, maybe all of us were probably into kind of circa 2006 or or something. Like I know I was, um, where, but, but, you know, the atheism often kind of takes a backseat to just like, like rampant Islamophobia and, and Omar is like the Chris Hitchens of comedy. Yeah. I mean, I, I was amazed when I, when I, uh, was doing research for uh, the piece I wrote on Bill Maher that like that he is supposed to be like a comedian. Like I didn't realize that that was like <laughs> the milieu that he ostensibly came out of because uh, 
like he's I guess kind of like I associated him with people like John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. Like obviously they're a lot different, but um, just in terms of like the pundit qua comedian or or whatever kind of uh, mold. But I didn't realize that he actually comes like from the world of comedy. And then also he's been doing this since the nineties. Like he used to, like he had his uh, politically incorrect show and he's always loved to punch left. I would say more than uh, punch right, which is actually something that he and uh, Sorkin have in common. Another thing they have in common. I have your article up on Bill Maher here and I was just perusing it before the interview and there was one quote that really took me out of it, which was uh, Bill Maher in 2001 discussing Vietnam as necessary. Um, quote, the bullies of the world, we would put our, we showed the bullies of the world, we would put ourselves on the line and spend lives. <laughs> he also said it he ended the Cold War. It ended the Cold War. <laughs> Make any sense. Yeah, that's right. You drop you drop napalm on on Vietnam, and then thirty years later, uh, the Soviet Union collapses. Clearly, those are the, yeah, like what? the same thing. Yeah. To be fair, that was after nine uh, eleven, and he uh, is of course a self described nine eleven liberal, uh, which is <laughs> the <laughs> one. Yeah, aren't we all? What's that? I said, aren't we all 9-11 liberals? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone after 9-11 is a 9-11 liberal. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, and they would use that as like, this is our, this was our sort of one uh, very brief, um, like, look at what it's sort of like to have an existential threat to your country you know what and it your is? way of life. It's like the heated gaming moment of politics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Things got real, and you said some stuff about Vietnam. You can't take back now, and it's coming out in Jacobin. Right. Well, yeah, but you went even further than Vietnam. I mean, you had the the new atheists come. And just to be clear, before some crank on the internet gets at us, not we're not we're not talking about all atheists. We're talking about a specific movement. I wouldn't even call it a movement. A specific fad that began in the two thousands. A cadre, yeah, of idiots. Right. Nine <laughs> eleven um, atheists. <laughs> But to what extent do you think that uh, group, that intellectual uh, group of, of dudes, uh, was basically all guys? Um, that what do a you think that of dudes? What a, a <laughs> chocolate? Uh, do you think they, to an extent, sort of laid the groundwork for what we would now some people might call the intellectual dark web? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like uh, there's been a convergence of all of these like mid 2000s kind of slightly, maybe slightly, rea- slightly to very reactionary kind of internet fads have all converged like, um, and, and to some extent have all found them, their expression through uh, Donald Trump. Like, uh, you know, like the manus, all the manosphere stuff and like the, the worst parts of uh, the worst parts of 4chan and like whether these, whether a lot of these people actually like Trump or not, which a lot of them are, are, uh, are, are, you know, outspoken in how much they personally dislike Trump. Like they, they normalized a lot of things, especially for liberal audiences. Um, and just for, you know, uh, b- like boomers who watch cable news for entertainment and break their brains. Like, uh, you know, they normalized, you know, the idea that there's a border crisis and that, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's too much immigration from Muslim majority countries. Um, and, you know, the United States is under threat from, uh, 
you know, these, these very nebulous enemies abroad uh, who, you know, pose a, an immediate threat to everybody's security and well-being. Like, they, they helped lay the groundwork for all that stuff. And I think more importantly, they helped give it kind of this intellectual sheen, which maybe it wouldn't have had in the hands of, like, you know, Rick Santorum or Ted Cruz or, or whatever. It's like a kind of a cultural Trojan horse type of role a lot of those people had. Right. Um, well, just wrapping up, uh, I, you know, we are in, in different countries, but we are, uh, part of the same, we, you know, we share the a lot same of struggle. Yeah. We're, we're, we're yeah. all one internationalism. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that, Globalism. on that note, like what are some, uh, things we can think about some points of solidarity between, uh, the American and, and Canadian left that we can sort of grab onto? Um, How's poutine? <laughs> uh, it's really good, actually. You you guys should. Tr- I mean, do you guys just not have that? No, it's forbidden. That's always so weird because in Canada, like it is just like you can get it at McDonald's. Like it's not, it's not like they a, have, a big deal. They have it's, New York. It's around, but it's like an endeavor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I went to Montreal last uh, August, and you can go to A and M, and they have a teen burger. Wow. Which is a poutine burger, but it's on the menu is teen burger, and no one thinks it's a conspiracy of international global <laughs> enslaving children in the basement. Well, I think I think we found our point of uh, our point of solidarity, which is our common struggle to get uh, this this pretty mediocre Canadian uh, cuisine across the border, so they can be shared with all the peoples of the world. <laughs> All right, I guess that's it. Nothing well loose our chains, comrades. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and loosen our belts too. Luke, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, I got my own podcast, which uh, I, I don't that's know. Right. We, we might we, podcast, by the way. We, we sorry. I like. I'm a big fan of Michael and us. Oh, thank uh, you. Yeah, well, uh, we're uh, we're fans of you guys as well, and uh, yeah, we'd uh, we'd love to have you uh, all on at some point. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, Michael and us. It's, uh, I don't know, probably talk about a lot of the same stuff that you guys talk about. Um, it's kind of through the lens of, um, it started through the lens of kind of ironically rewatching Michael Moore films to see how they held up. And then that just became, you know, metastasized into a whole universe of like uh, revisiting uh, mid 2000s paraphernalia to see if it holds up, which uh, by and large, it does not. Beautiful. <laughs> I'll definitely check that out. Um, anybody here got anything? Uh, Rog of Meta. Follow me, ACU Official. Got a weekly show. In, if you live in Brooklyn, I got a weekly show in Park Slope at Cherry Tree Bar every Thursday, 8 p.m. Come by. Uh, at Anders Lee here on Twitter, Dursley1, Instagram. Um, I got some dates coming up for uh, my solo show about autism, Dummy. Uh, you can find out more by liking dummy hyphen solo show on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Patak Jokes. I have a show at the same bar on Sunday because me and Raghav are partners. Yeah, we have a symbiotic comedy relationship. And if you want to see Jake or you find him, please let someone know. (laughs) We're very concerned as to where Jake went, and we think it could get even more goth. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Luke, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. It was fun. All right. All right, that's it for this time. Bye. Okay.